Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. Everton win at Anfield, City win again, Moyes gets the better of Mourinho and could Fulham actually stay up? I'm Dan Burke, this is the Premier League Weekend Review Podcast and I'm joined for this one by Matt Froelich. Good afternoon. And Alex Mott. Hello. So I think it was uh, it was one Liverpool defeat too many for poor Joel this week and he couldn't bring himself to come on and talk about it. <laughs> oh no. Can't say I blame him to be honest, but we're going to talk about it and we'll start today's show at Anfield where Liverpool were beaten by Everton for the first time on that ground since 1999. Uh, the opening goal in this game came after less than three minutes when James Rodriguez slipped Richarlison in behind Ozan Kabak to score. I read in The Guardian this weekend that Kabak has now been on the winning side just eight times in the last three seasons. Uh, Alex, are you beginning to think that uh, <laughs> that bringing a player in who, who's so low on confidence into this Liverpool team right in the middle of a season maybe wasn't such a great idea? Well, I think it's... Uh, I mean, it wasn't a great idea, but that's the sort of only idea they had, really. I mean, mm. you've really... With all of this, we've got to remember that Liverpool have the worst sort of injuries at the moment. And to key players, it's like four first-choice centre-backs are all out. So as much as I blame Kabak for that first goal and the sort of concentration lapse that he had, it's, you know, it's really the only option that Klopp had, I think. Um, they're, yeah, they're struggling defensively. They're struggling all over the pitch. And, um, yeah, you could really tell from uh, that first goal that he just, yeah, he didn't look on it straight away, did he? But, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I feel sorry for him and I feel sorry for Liverpool because they're having sort of unprecedented run of injuries at the moment. So, yeah, when we uh, when we have a go at them, I think that it's got to be told through that prism, I think. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, on the subject of yeah. centre-backs, Matt, I mean, they, they also signed Ben Davies from Preston in January. Why do you think he's not been given a run out yet? Yeah, because he was like a plan C at best. Mm. I feel like there was a little bit of, because that deal was done... I believe on the morning of the transfer window and back was done in the evening. Mm. So for me, this seems like a real sort of, we're going for Kabak. If, if we don't get him last resort is Davis. If we do get Kabak, then, you know, I'm sure Davis will still be happy to be here because he's moved from Preston to Liverpool. That's, that's what I kind of really think it was for me because you've seen, even where both of them fit that Henderson's played at the back. I mean, putting in two, defenders one from the championship one from the bottom team in the Bundesliga both at once is probably a wise decision to not put them both in at the same time yeah. so I can't really see I can't really see any way in which Davis would get in the, the thing is that both of them Kabak way more than Davis would learn from playing alongside Van Dijk but if Van Dijk was playing, they wouldn't have this problem in the first place. Yeah. So they're, they're in a bit of a catch-22, really. I just thought it was interesting how when they did have to bring someone on in this game, they brought Nat Phillips on and not, not Ben Davis. You sort of think, how bad has he been in training that he can't, uh-huh. even, uh, he can't even get a game? But, I mean, you mentioned the injury crisis, Alex. It's getting worse, if anything. They, they had Jordan, Jordan Henderson go off with a groin strain in the first half. It looks like he could be out for four, five, maybe six weeks with that one. Do you think he's the last player Liverpool would want to get injured, particularly because, um, you know, Kabak and Davis were signed to kind of get Henderson further up the pitch and now that's not even possible now yeah absolutely you can you can really see that Henderson going back into central defense has not just affected them in central defense but has also affected their midfield and that midfield three uh, on Saturday Jones, Wijnaldum and Thiago on paper that looks like a very respectable or even brilliant Premier League midfield three but Mm. they just got totally overrun by by Everton didn't they and um, they just they looked lost without Henderson's sort of leadership and 
that you know there's a lot of clips that go around on social media all, all the time that sort of um, highlight Henderson's how vocal he is during the game and he's sort of guiding players all the way through the game all the time shouting and he is like Klopp's representative on the pitch so he's going to be a huge huge miss for them and I think yeah it's looking worrying for Liverpool <laughs> between now and the end of the season mm. four, four defeats in a row I can yeah I could really see that run continuing to be honest because yeah without Henderson there. They look a bit lost. They really do. Yeah, we will talk about the game in a second, I promise. But just on the subjects of injuries, <laughs> just one more point on this. I mean, of course, the, the injuries to Van Dijk, Gomez, Matip are the ones that have received the most attention this season. Liverpool have now conceded 34 goals compared to 15 after 25 games of last season. They've also scored 15 fewer goals than they scored at this stage last season. Matt, do you think maybe that, that injury to Diogo Jota has perhaps been the biggest killer to them? And particularly since Roberto Firmino is looking well past his peak at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't think that, that Jota would, would, was the signing to replace Firmino anyway, really. I feel like he was definitely, certainly from what we've seen in his time at Wolves, more of a wider player to replace Salah or Mane. Um, if Liverpool really were worried about Firmino, I'm sure they would have signed another striker instead of sticking with Origi, and I'm sure they will do this summer. Um, but yeah, Firmino, for some reason, it just, I get the feeling that and we know this as well, he is very much a team player and someone that doesn't necessarily have the individual quality to win games um, like Salamane do. And I think that's been telling in the fact that a season where we talk about Henderson's not in midfield and he's back in defence, so then the midfield isn't quite used to all playing together because you've got a new signing and a youngster in Jones. I think that's affecting Firmino further forward where he needs kind of the consistency and he needs what he's been used to for the last two years behind him. Whereas with Salamane, I feel like it's not really about who's around them. They've both got individual quality that can that can turn games. Yeah, do you think do you think Firmino's ever going to get back to the level that he was? I've seen a few Liverpool fans over the weekend saying that he's he's kind of lost it. But I think lost what though? <laughs> I don't know. He just he just isn't really sort of chipping in with goals. I mean, he's never been a, a prolific goal scorer, but he's not really contributing yeah. very much at all at the moment. I don't. You think. You could sort of see that, like Liverpool's game plan at the weekend, a lot of it was just get it wide to the fullbacks and swing in a few crosses. Mm. And Firmino isn't that sort of striker. And you know, when Liverpool are totally on song and everything's humming like it was last season, or the, certainly the first half of last season. Um, Firmino is the perfect striker for them, you know, dropping deep and allowing the sort of the midfield runs, runners to get in behind him and allowing the two wide forwards to get more centrally. But when it's not working, Firmino almost looks like the weakest link in that style. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. Um, you sort of, yeah, you, they need a plan B, I think, up front, which isn't Origi, because like you say, Origi's not, although he scores some very important goals for them over recent years he hasn't quite got that quality so I, I wouldn't be surprised if they went or they sort of tried to sign a, another like proper centre forward um, over the summer that's that's what I mean about Jota really I think he was the plan B that they've yeah, lost the past possibly, few months yeah. and I mean I, yeah. I remember when they played City at the Etihad earlier in the season they played four strikers that day and I was like wow yeah. if this is the future then you know everyone <laughs> else is going to have to be worried about about this team but you know it, they, they lost him and, and they've not really had a, a, a second option aside from yeah. Firmino who's struggling a bit but but yeah back to the derby itself and a lot of people suggested Salah and Mane were going down a bit easily in search of penalties when things got a bit desperate in the second half <laughs> um, we've spoken recently about how 
players sometimes need to go down when they feel contact because otherwise they're not going to get anything from the referee. But do you think those incidents on Saturday crossed the line and were just straight up cheating, basically, Alex? Yeah, they were dives. They both dives. Yeah. Um, and and certainly with maybe probably not um, Mane, but with Salah, definitely he has a reputation now. Mm. Um, yeah, sort of every time he goes down, he it looks like it's a dive um but just because of purely how many times he's done it in the past and i do agree that is doing sometimes need to go down and get to contact to, to look for fouls but um yeah both of those on saturday with dives so yeah i'm not having, not having that does he need to work on his diving technique do you think maybe t- <laughs> yeah. take some acting classes or something yeah <laughs> Uh, of course it was Everton who eventually got a penalty to make it 2-0 when Dominic Calvert-Lewin went down via uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold in the box and I'm being careful about how I described the incident because uh, you know Alexander-Arnold didn't know much about it did he really do you you think that was a penalty Matt I'm I'm really torn on this one (laughs) for some reason I think if the penalty wasn't given in the first place right the ball rolled out of play and then they went back and looked at the monitor. They think, oh, you know, this and that. He's not really sure what's going on around him. Alexander-Arnold, probably safer to not give it. But because it was given first, they then couldn't turn around and then not give it. Mm. I feel like the, the initial reaction w- was too big to be overturned. I don't think... I mean, I saw that Mark Clattenburg was talking in the newspaper saying he lifted his head up. He denied a goal-scoring opportunity. He's lucky to get away with that without a red card. It was a definite penalty. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a bit, that's a bit strong for me. I don't, I don't really know. It's one of those where if you applied every letter of the law to the replay, mm. then maybe yes. If you applied the letters of the law to live action, then potentially no. I think, I think it was a little bit harsh. Um, but you can kind of see why the ref gave it in real time. I mean, Dominic Calvert-Lewin's, the ball's broken. He could have just tucked in the rebound and then suddenly he's on the floor. You know, you kind of put two and two together and come up with penalty. Uh, well, Alex, what do you think? Do you think it was a penalty? I mean, my, my, my next question was going to be, if it was a penalty, shouldn't Alexander-Arnold also have been sent off by the letter of the um, law? I thought it was a penalty. I'd, I'm not really sure what the argument against that is, to be honest. I think he's clearly denied a goal scoring opportunity I'm not entirely sure what the law is there whether it's whether because it's the double jeopardy rule I'm not really sure whether that is a red card but it was definitely a penalty for me I I really don't understand what the argument against that is to be honest Mm. It just seems harsh that he just didn't know what was going yeah, on. Did he really? yeah, he just, yeah. he just but, in the wrong place at the wrong yeah, time. Exactly. And, yeah, exactly. It is. It is harsh, but yeah, it is a penalty for me. I think mm. you almost feel like this should be like an indirect free kick for something like that, mm, or something. Yeah, 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 but yeah. But, uh, but never mind. Yeah, um, we haven't really spoken about <laughs> how brilliant Everton were in yeah. this game yet. So, so let's talk about that now. There are three players in particular I want to single out for praise. The first one is Jordan Pickford. I mean, he's he's come in for a lot of fr- criticism this season. You know, most notably on this podcast, um, but he. Really he really banished those Anfield demons of his here, didn't he, Alex? Yeah, I thought it wasn't that he was spectacularly good. It was that he was solid. And I think Jordan Jordan Pickford has very rarely been solid recently. Mm. Um, he had an ex- excellent World Cup, but that was nearly that was two and a half years ago now, nearly three years ago. And since then, I'm not really sure what's happened to him. You know, they, uh, Angel, I dropped him earlier on in the season. That obviously didn't really work out too well for Olsen. But um, yeah, I thought he was just really solid here. And, and 
I, I don't know whether the three at the back, the three centre-backs helped him a little bit, um, but that he really just sort of worked off his defenders and really exude a sort of confidence that he rarely does exude uh, or has at least hasn't for the past few years. So, yeah, he looked he looked really good, commanded his area well. And he made a great save from that Henderson volley in the, in the yeah. first half. So, yeah, more of that from from Pickford. And, and, and we've seen, you know, from teams like City, like Liverpool with Alisson, a, a solid top goalkeeper can get you a long way in the Premier League, mm. um, and if Everton are going to push on, they need Pickford to sort of get back back to it. I think is he England's best goalkeeper. Would you say? I would personally, I'd go for Nick Pope at mm. the moment, but obviously, I know Southgate has sort of likes to. He has his favourites, let's say, um, and Pickford is one of those. Um, but I, yeah, I'd personally go for Nick Pope at the moment. Um, but if Pickford can keep performing like that, then yeah, there's there's no reason why he shouldn't be the number one for the Euros, for sure. Yeah, well, you mentioned the three centre-backs there. Uh, ben Godfrey and Mason Holgate were both really good here, but the one who really stood out for me was Michael Keane. He made it, He made a Bobby Morris tackle on, I think it was Salah <laughs> at one point, and he was pretty much flawless throughout in this game. He He's really come on leaps and bounds under Carlo Ancelotti, hasn't he, Matt? I mean, trust an Italian manager to get the best out of a defence. Um, but no, I, I think he has. But I also think that goes credit to the team as well. Um, I think defensively, Godfrey has been such a good signing. And I just think that him, Holgate and Keane as a unit are better. And it would also lend themselves to to kind of making themselves stand out individually a bit better as well. Um, I think Coleman's form has been really good too. And Luca Dina's brilliant. Mm. But yeah, Keane's been a really kind of crucial part to this side. And like you said, he was, you know, it was quite a lot of money, 30 million from Burnley a couple of seasons back. And I just think that Everton's failure is all too easy to pin on the defenders, um, especially when they're not playing, you know, attractive attacking football. And I think that now if you watch some games where in the past Everton's defence would have been under a bit more pressure, they're not now because they're keeping the ball, they're attacking more. Um, the opposition maybe aren't throwing as much at Everton's defence because they're too worried about stopping James and, you know, Richarlison. So it, it could be a mixture of things. I've no doubt he's getting better, but I think it's it's kind of uh, as part of the whole team being stronger as well. Mm. You know, they call Phil Foden the Stockport and Iesta. Michael mm. Keane's also from Stockport, so maybe he could be the Stockport Nesta under Carlo Ancelotti. <laughs> maybe that's... You started a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Remember where you heard it first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and the other player I wanted to praise was Tom Davies, who's coming for a lot of criticism from, from even Everton fans this season, but I think he's getting really good at that screening role in front of the defence, isn't he, Alex? Yeah, I think he's been... He, he sort of got lost a little bit, didn't he, last season? Mm. I think there was a few injuries, and it was sort of, is he going to kick on after, you know, when he first burst onto the scene, I remember that game against Man City when they beat him four one at Goodison, or was it four um, nil? And he was he was sort of man of the match that day. But ever since then, it's sort of he's gone under the radar a lot. But Ancelotti's trusting him now. I think he started sixteen games in the Premier League now, and, and he's yeah that new sort of deeper role that he's playing. It really suits him, just screening that defence and you know put, sort of being a bit of a pendulum for for Evan and. And he seems like a top bloke as well. Yeah. I saw that on Twitter afterwards. He was going around buying homeless fellas drinks. Oh, um, that's with, right. With yeah, Baines. Yeah. So, yeah, more power mm. to him, I <laughs> Well, that result leaves Liverpool and Everton level on 40 points. Liverpool have now won just 11 of their 25 games this season. Do you think Everton could actually finish above them, Matt? Do you think the momentum's with them now? I mean, last last week I was saying no chance. It's Everton <laughs> and Anfield. But now after that, who am I to say? I mean, surely with, with this kind of confidence, you'd think so. 11 out of 25, that's, that is shocking. <laughs> I did not even think it was that bad. But um, yeah, why not? 
Why not Everton? Well, we were both saying on the podcast last week that Everton had no chance of beating Liverpool, didn't we? Yeah. I think, I think exactly. Maybe, I think maybe we jinxed it, and I think maybe that was what I wanted to happen. So, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't actually looked at the run of who they've got left, but I know the Merseyside derbies are out of the way, so that's a that's a big plus for Everton. Exactly. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm sure that given the run they're on now, they should have every belief that like they only got to look at where West Ham are to see that anything's possible. Yeah. Well, Everton have got Southampton, West Brom, Burnley, Crystal Palace of four of their next five games. Wow. So, well, there you go. So look, you do yeah. that. Yeah. So it could, they, they, this could kickstart, definitely kickstart a run. Uh, but then they got Man City last day of the season. That could be interesting. Mm. But unless we're just hoping not to see the Everton at home to Fulham or Newcastle that we talked mm. about recently. It's yeah. going to be a big test of whether this yeah. is like still typical Everton, isn't it? Yeah. Really? Like, yeah. The, can they take this opportunity or are they going to kind of mess it up as they have done in the past? Let's let's find out, yeah. shall we? Uh, well, Manchester City made 18 wins on the spin in all competitions when they were 1-0 away at Arsenal on Sunday. They've now beaten Chelsea, Liverpool, Tottenham, Everton and Arsenal in recent weeks. Uh, last month, they outclassed Man United at Old Trafford in the Carabao Cup. They might not be the best Premier League team ever but might this be the biggest golfing class we've ever, we've ever seen between the best team in the league and the rest for you Alex yeah I, yeah that's actually a really good point I, I it's so good aren't they there I, I actually think this is such a testament to Guardiola's management really because you know everyone just sort of says oh you know could he do it on half the budget or you know whatever but they looked did they draw with West Brom in December maybe yeah and people mm. were saying this might be Guardiola's worst side ever. <laughs> um, and to go from that to this in the space of two and a half months is just remarkable, really. Um, and they just, they're playing, they're a totally different side to that previous one that, you know, that, you know won, won the league before. And they just look so much, they just look so solid. They look so good going forward. Um, Sunday was just a training, training session, really, for them, wasn't it? They, mm. You know, they got the, uh, and, and that's, in some ways, that's, so, so what's so impressive is Guardiola's clearly said, "Go out early, get the goal, and then we can sit back." And that's how we're going to get through this, you know, this crazy season where we're playing every three days. So it's, you know, so we can play at half speed or never get out of second gear for for an hour. So yeah, I, I think they're brilliant, and I think it's such a testament to Guardiola and how well he's done that that they are this good. To be honest, yeah, that's what's sort of conflicting me though. Like they are brilliant, as you say, they are playing with so much confidence. You know, teams are can't get get near them sometimes with the movement and stuff but I wonder if the rest of the league being quite poor is making them look a bit better I can't really uh, I can't really decide that personally oh I don't know I think you're being overly cynical (laughs) maybe uh, (laughs) I I think they're they're just they're brilliant at the moment and they're just they're just the best coach team in the league aren't they and you can clearly tell that from from how they're playing at the moment and you know and the sort of the goalkeeper's been playing really well. The two centre-backs, how what he's doing with Jao Cancelo is amazing. The way he's worked with Foden. Sterling sort of come up to the fore and is captain inside sometimes. And without Aguero, without De Bruyne, they're still doing it. So... Mm. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're brilliant. brilliant well, Pep Guardiola now has the record for the longest winning streaks in La Liga, the Bundesliga, and the Premier League. <laughs> Matt, does that unequivocally make him the best coach around, or is he is he still a ball fraud who needs to prove himself by managing yeah. West Brom? No, he is the best coach there ever was and ever will be in my <laughs> eyes. Anyway, I just I can't I can't fathom anyone who would just say, "Oh, he's just a money manager," or "He's just this and that and the other." There are thousands of examples of managers who kind of fall off or who go to a club and this doesn't quite work out. And it just does not happen. I mean, he could be in the midst of something bad happening and then he's got the innovation to go and change it. And I just, 
the things I've always said about a Pep Guardiola side, always, 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 especially his Manchester City team, is that when you don't abandon your principles and you play the way that Manchester City play, you might have the off game, right? You might have the draw to West Brom. You might have the defeat to Leicester at home. But playing that way is going to get you success 80 to 90% of the time. And that's what you need this season. I mean, they could probably play it 70% and they'd still win the title this year. But for most seasons, they're just going to be so good. And a, a blip here and there isn't really a, corn, a cause for concern at all. And I just think that Guardiola's ability to coach his teams through that period, identify issues, bring in small tactical tweaks that maybe others wouldn't think of, um, just makes him by far and away the best coach, uh, the best coach in world football for me. And I just, yeah, I mean, look, if Jurgen Klopp turns it around and suddenly Liverpool are back on top again, then maybe we can talk about him being up there as well. Mm. But but whilst Klopp goes through these, you know, work hard for me for two or three seasons, then when it all goes down the pan like it did at Dortmund, I'm just going to have to leave. Mm. You know, unless he could do what Guardiola does at every club, I don't think he's close. I think Guardiola, yeah, is by far and away the best coach. Well, that's the problem Klopp has at the moment, I guess, isn't it? That that kind of pattern of behaviour is looking like it's repeating itself at Liverpool. Mm. And, and can he can he now arrest this sort of decline and can he change it around like Guardiola did? And um, yeah, you're right. I mean, the West Brom draw was the last time they didn't win a game in any competition. Um, <laughs> and, and and there was a bit of talk in the build-up to the Arsenal game about how they sort of sat down and had kind of crisis talks with the squad and said, like, we need to change the way we're doing things because it's not working we need to we need to rethink things totally and yeah. you know I, I saw the the team sheet for the Arsenal game at the weekend and I was glad we didn't have a striker on the pitch because we don't need one we play better without one and I, yeah. I would never have said that like two months ago that that was a thing that we could do like I, I literally I tweeted that just before the game started I just I just thought imagine being that that assured and confident in yourself as a coach Right, and that sort of aware that your tactics and everything you've been working on are so good that you can go away to a potentially tricky game and start without a striker, but with Jesus and Aguero on the bench. Yeah, but still being that comfortable. Yeah, I just—he's brilliant. Well, you touched on it earlier, Alex, about uh, about what he's doing with Jao Cancelo this season. I mean, am I exaggerating when I say that it's pretty groundbreaking stuff? I feel like he's sort of like hacked football a little bit. <laughs> I feel like if, if you can get a, a, get a fullback who can come and play inside that well, you can kind of. Like it's just very hard to kind of get a get a get a grip of what's going on for yeah, the opposition, and I, I seem to remember um, David Alaba doing something similar a few years ago when mm. when um, he was at Bayern. But certainly in the Premier League, I've never seen anything like. I it. think and Philip I, yeah. Philip Lamy did it with him at Bayern as well. Yeah, yeah, that might be it. Yeah, yeah, and but and it's but certainly in the Premier League, I've never really seen anything like it. And like you say, it just makes opposition managers doubt themselves and have to think extra hard about how to stop City and they haven't come up come up with anything yet. Like you say, it's 18 wins in a row. I think the world record is 24 wins, um, which is Curitiba, I believe, maybe 15 right. years ago in Brazil. So yeah, so right. they're only six away from the world record. So that's got to be something that they're, uh, yeah, they're thinking about, I would have thought. <laughs> it's on. Well, if, if my maths are right, there have now been 92 home wins in the Premier League this season compared to 98 away wins. Uh, I, I mean, the empty stadiums have clearly been a factor. Um, do you think it's been particularly beneficial to City, Martin, that they can go out there and be the better football team without being distracted by, you know, hostile away grounds and whatnot? It feels like their games are being played under laboratory conditions almost. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's how uh, a lot of Guardiola's 
teams play they play with these sort of routines and drills and you can see them replicating from the training ground into the pitch you know whether it's right Edison's got the ball and how do you play out from there and they're so well drilled to take everything from the training ground to the Saturday game or the Wednesday game whenever it is um that these conditions are also very similar to the training pitch absolutely no one's watching you can hear each other um, there's no sort of, uh, yeah, no crowd noise to contend with. If you were, Pep Guardiola creates the exact replica of a game day in training. And mm. now, like Alex said, the game day almost is training for them. Yeah. And there's absolutely no difference to, to a stadium, to their training pitch. And it's perfect for someone who runs routines and runs game plans like, like Guardiola does during the week. Yeah, well, you look at the Arsenal game at the weekend. I mean, City came out and basically kept the ball for 20 minutes at the start of the game. In a normal circumstances, you'd, you'd have, uh, you know, a, a full house at the Emirates, the crowd would be right behind the home side. That just wouldn't happen really, would it? Yeah. But you can just kind of, yeah, you can just kind of play football and not have to worry about external influences. Um, Alex, do you think um, momentum might also have been a factor for City? It feels like they've played a game every three days for as long as I can remember. And yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if it's just actually been more of a help than a hindrance that it's just, just keep keep going, keep going, you know? It's definitely, when you're winning, it's definitely a help. Yeah, well, obviously mm. when you're losing, it's not a help. But yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think City are going into games games now just expecting to win and opposition the opposition are thinking if we can keep this down to a goal or two goals then move on and that's absolutely fine and yeah I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Champions League affects City now um that's I mean I think they'll beat Gladbach but you know whether the extra travel or anything like that will be will be a factor going forward but yeah they've definitely got the momentum with them and um, yeah they just they look unstoppable don't they yeah well that's interesting because you know even the cynic in me is pretty certain that City are going to win the Premier League now um and I don't really see anyone else in Europe who is on the same level as them at this moment in time. So, Matt, do you think the quadruple could be on? Or rather, could this be the best circumstances under which an English club could win a quadruple? Yeah, if you're looking at circumstances, definitely. Um, considering not only in the Premier League, but how many teams around Europe seem to be faltering, especially the big names. Yeah, even like Bayern um, Munich aren't anywhere near as good as they were last season, are they, I don't think? Yeah, exactly. You know, Real and Barca as well, um, and Juventus too, and it's just... It's a bit odd. I think, I mean, they're probably going to lose the Carabao Cup final. Let's, you know, let's be honest there. Um, <laughs> but we never really, really know um, kind of when one game can sting them. But certainly, like you said, there is the, the best opportunity. I just think they're so entertaining to watch. When you want to watch something entertaining, stick Man City on, even if you're not a fan. <laughs> Well, I am a fan and I'm finding it very entertaining. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> uh, well, Arsenal have now lost their last eight league games against City and haven't even scored a goal in the last four of those. Um, I mean, I think it says it all that they probably came away from this game quite content to have only lost 1-0. So they're clearly a long way behind City. But Alex, how far do you think they are behind the likes of United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Leicester, even West Ham at the moment? I'm, I feel very conflicted about Arteta, really, because I, I feel like he's had, he's had long enough now to stamp some sort of identity on this Arsenal team. And I, I don't know what they are or what they do. Um, they, they're, just, they're just sort of nothing, really. I can't, I can't envisage a world where they're going to finish top four in the next two, three seasons. Mm. And how long are they going to give Arteta, really? You know, he sort of says all the right things in, in press conferences. And, um, you know, they, they spend big money. They've bought Partey, Tierney. They've got a really good squad, but I think like a lot, like like a lot of teams, really, Bar sort of City um, and maybe Chelsea, 
Arsenal got a great first eleven, but they've actually got a very weak and thin squad. And I think once injuries have hit, which they have this season, they look very average. Um, I thought, and it says everything about where Arsenal are now that people were just sort of patting them on the head. I was as well in my piece that I wrote, sort of pat, <laughs> patting them on the head and saying, well done for keeping it to 1-0. That was a good performance. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess how the mighty have fallen really. But yeah, I, I'd, I think there were certainly miles behind City. I think Chelsea, Liverpool, United, even Leicester. And yeah, I mean, it's sort of where West Ham are in the league. That's very damning for the likes of Arsenal, mm. isn't it? I think. And um, yeah, like I say, I just can't see them finishing the top four over the next few seasons. And yeah, that, that's a huge worry for Arsenal, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, West Ham, as you mentioned there, are up to the heady heights of fourth thanks to a 2-1 win over Tottenham on Sunday. Uh, we'll talk about Spurs first. That that quote has been doing the rounds about Jose Mourinho <laughs> said he came to the club because he was attracted to working with the players there. Now he's acting like the players he's got aren't good enough. Um, his actual words after the game were, there are issues in the squad that I cannot resolve and no coach can. What do you think he's on about there, Matt? Is it, guessing, this, is it this Spursiness that just won't go away? Yeah, maybe he didn't. <laughs> he didn't really know what being Spursy was all about. Um, obviously, I don't blame him for saying, you know, saying that before he joined. I mean, everything can look attractive from the outside, yeah. but once you get inside, it's obviously a bit different. That's I don't blame him for that. But saying that no coach can resolve this, he's he's basically just sort of admitted that they aren't good enough. And whilst I agree in some cases. I feel like there's got to be some evidence that he's trying his best mm. to do this. You know, the, the constant changing of the back line is such a nightmare, despite the fact that they're all useless. The, the You know, the constant changing of the midfield and some decisions when it comes to the, certainly the starting lineup and the tactics are employed as well. You know, looking at home to, against certain teams where you think, come on, Spurs, you should really be attacking them. I feel like he's not really getting every possible decision he can write. If he does that and they still are issues, then he can say that I've done all I can. No, you know, these guys are uncoachable, but I don't quite think he's in that position just yet. <laughs> um, but look, look I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it's all his fault at all. Cause I just think some of the players aren't good enough. Um, and a, a massive change does need to happen at the club. And it's, it's to do with personnel. Sure. Can I say it? It's all Mourinho's fault. <laughs> um, not all of it. I think I, I actually can't. I could not believe what I was listening to when I saw that on Sunday. It's just the same old Mourinho playbook, really. Mm. Um, just abdicating responsibility, um, blaming the players, giving no sort of specifics as to what they can do better, what they're not doing well. You look at that squad. Not maybe Serge Aurier is the one player that's got better under his under his management, and I think that just says everything. Really, <laughs> he's not the the game has passed him by, and he's he's yesterday's coach. And I, I think it's got to be one of the worst decisions from a club to sack Pochettino and, and hire Mourinho. I can't can't think of many worse in in recent memory. That squad have got to a Champions League final and was consistently competing in the top four. Mourinho spent. A hell of a lot of money over the past whatever it is year now two years um i, I think they've, they've got to get rid and they've got to get rid soon because it's sort of toxic now I, yeah. that's how it looks on the outside yeah i think yeah and, and 
they were really good in the last half an hour, but in some ways that's even more damning than because of it. You know, that he just they just sort of he put a load of attacking players on and went for it. But what was he doing for the previous hour? Um, and just watched as West Ham got the better of them. A very average West Ham, in my in my opinion. Um, yeah, I, I think yeah, he's abdicating responsibility totally, and it's. Um, it's, just, it's sad, really, because this is a clearly a good squad who could go places. Yeah, well, I mean, when he took over, I, I wasn't sure whether getting rid of Pochettino was the right thing to do, but I thought Jaime Mourinho was quite smart. I thought he will he will probably win something with Spurs. Um, mm. Maybe a cup, maybe he'll win the Carabao Cup this season or the Europa League, who knows? Um, I didn't think he was he was going to be good enough to win the league because I do think the game has kind of passed him by a little bit and left him behind. Then earlier this season when they were top of the league, I thought, oh, maybe he's enjoying a bit of a renaissance. Maybe maybe he can still um, you know, w- win a league title w- with this team. Now it looks like he's, he's, he's stuck in the past again, but his actual words after the game were... Mine and my coaching staff's methods are second to nobody in the world, which is it's just not true, is it? It's just plainly wrong. Plainly wrong. And I just think that there's no, there's not a top club now that are going to want to want to hire him. It's mm. quite obvious that Chelsea second time round, Manchester United, and Tottenham. It, it, this has happened in all three of those those clubs where he has blamed the players, said they're not good enough, um, and said that it's not his fault. And once fine twice you could that's 50 50 but three times it's just so obvious that his methods now do not work with modern Mm, players um and after this i think there's not there's not a top club in the world that's going to hire him he's going straight to fenerbahce or (laughs) someone like that isn't he it's just that's the sort of environment that you're probably thriving actually yeah yeah. (laughs) well let's say spurs finish outside the top four this season that seems highly likely despite jose pointing out that it's not mathematically impossible yet um it seems highly unlikely that they'll sack him though doesn't it matt you know he's got two and a half years left on his contract i mean i feel like they've put all their eggs in the Mourinho basket now and it's kind of hard to just take them out I mean, you would, but then you've got to look at firing him, right? Apparently, it's going to cost around forty million. I read somewhere, mm. um, almost up to forty million. That's the cost that you're going to have to pay to bring in the player that Jose wants anyway, or even more. So you kind of got to weigh up what's going to be better for the club in the long term. I mean, there were so many reports, and again, you have no idea how close to being true they actually are. But that Mourinho wanted Ruben Diaz and Bruno Fernandez, um, and Spurs were linked heavily with both of them over the last. Um, 18 months to two years. You imagine this Spurs squad with those two players? Yeah, it'd make a big I mean, difference, wouldn't it? Yeah, that That's insane. So the thought of him going there and Levy going, yeah, but uh, it's a bit pricey, nah. Right, is is not exactly... Um, it's not exactly something that you can blame Jose for. Having said that, like we've mentioned before, he's got to do better coaching. Um, I don't know. I, I If they don't sack him, they've got to back him. Yeah. And that will cost hundreds of millions for Levy to back Jose and get the squad that he wants, as opposed to the, you know, one off forty million to get rid of him. Yeah. What do you reckon, Alex? Do you reckon they, they back him one, give him one more chance to turn things around next season? I just don't understand how they. I just don't understand how that can. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> this he's had. He's just had his chance, and he's had his chance for the past ten years since leaving Real Madrid, mm. and he hasn't delivered really. So. It was. I thought it was a mistake to begin with. Mourinho never changes. Um, it seems like the pandemic is sort of. You know, it's normally three years, isn't it? The, the third year is is the worst for Mourinho. This is the second year. I think the pandemic has just sort of sped up that mm-hmm. that sort of trajectory. Um, 
I just don't see how you can back him, really. Everything has pointed to, towards failure. So, mm. as ex- and as expensive as it would be, I'd, yeah, I think they've, they've got to get rid and get someone else. They really do. Otherwise, they're gonna, next season, they're just going to be in exactly the same position. I suppose it's a bit like Arsenal. It's, uh, you know, West Ham and, to a lesser extent, Leicester are making them look bad, aren't they, Spurs? Mm. Because, yeah, you know, absolutely. You, you look, if they, if it, they were only behind, you know, City, United, Chelsea, uh, whatever, then you think you would say, okay, well, you know, it's it's quite difficult to sort of break into that into that uh, top three or whatever. But other teams are managing it, so why can't why can't Spurs? Well, they, yeah, yeah, they've got, and we're we're forgetting as well. They have the best striker in the world, probably <laughs> out front, and they're ninth and scored how many goals? They scored thirty seven goals, which is mm. the same as Aston Villa. So, yeah. There yeah, you go. I've said my piece. Yeah, well, it was another brilliant result and performance from West Ham, and particularly Jesse Lingard, who scored his third goal in four league games since joining the Hammers. Are you are you pleased to see him well, uh, doing well, Matt? As as a general rule. Yeah, absolutely. I never want a player to do badly, um, and I just think from I remember watching the World Cup and thinking, oh, you know, Lingard's really fitting into this team. Like this yeah. could be the start of something. So to see him kind of nosedive pretty much in the last three years since has been quite sad, but. Like, I guess, I guess it's testimony of a player just actually getting game time. Mm. I don't know. The same thing is happening with Donny Van der Beek at United. How can you expect this guy to pick up form when you're giving him 20 minutes in the Premier League and then the odd Carabao Cup start? Yeah, like it just it really doesn't make any sense. And the same thing with Lingard. If he doesn't want to play, let him go and play football somewhere else. And they have, and it's no surprise that that kind of confidence has really allowed him to push on. Um, as for a late Euros run, I know people were talking about it. I think there's much better players than nah, the, in so, the attacking so field option. Is career, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's far better younger players um, who I'm sure we'll get on to talk about soon. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so look, as long as he enjoys the club football, what is he? 28 now. Yeah, 27, 28. Yeah, yeah, like yeah that. exactly. You've got loads of years to go. Over Still to a youngster. A, a great Premier League. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, why not? I, I, I've, and I've, I've definitely said on the podcast before, but we forget that footballers are people too. And he's mm. had a lot of like personal tragedy in his life over the past mm. two years, which, you know, it's very difficult to switch your brain off when you're on a football pitch when stuff like that happens. Yeah. So um, it was, a you know, and it's a, a testament to David Moyes, um, who seems to have been given trust from his from the board at West Ham to be able to sign who he wants and scout his own players and things like that. And yeah, it's just one of those rare moves that sort of works for all parties, isn't it? So um, yeah, good luck to him. Well, Moisey said West Ham haven't hit top gear yet. Do you think that's right, Alex? And do you, do you think they will finish top four? Do you believe I, it? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure they'll finish top four, but I think they'll run it close. But I think you probably have to say Moyes for manager of the season on this right I think mm. he's they're playing they're, and what they are is a really good team and like I say it's very rare for West Ham to sort of trust the manager in, totally and give him sort of the keys to the kingdom but they seem to have done that with Moyes and and people like Suchek like Jared Bowen they're the sort of players that West Ham should should be signing and should always have been signing you know forget your yeah, Felipe Andersons and, and people like that people from the championship and sort of the sort of lesser leagues in Europe that can come in and create a proper unit and that's what West Ham are at the moment a really balanced well well drilled unit who are playing above themselves um and yeah it's good to see I, I think they're actually one of the rare cases that um the pandemic is helping them and mm. not playing in front of fans is actually <laughs> yeah. a good thing um because you could I could certainly see a world where if everything was normal, the sort of mistakes they were making earlier on in the campaign 
that you know the fans at that stadium very quickly get on their back and they wouldn't be able to have the patience or the or West Ham wouldn't have the time to, to sort of get back into a into a run of run of wins so um yeah i think the pandemic's helped them and, and the signings have been brilliant and um yeah long may it continue it's it's, it's um yeah it's good indeed well they've got they've got man city leeds man united arsenal wolves and leicester in their Ooh. next six so that's that's yeah. going to be the, the, the crucial yeah. period for them isn't it well, yeah. well we'll really find out what they're made of uh manchester united are still second in the table after they beat newcastle at old trafford on sunday that's now just one defeat in their last 19 premier league games for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side but also just two wins in the last six i can't make my mind up about this team alex can you i don't know whether they're a good <laughs> side or not i don't know whether where they're gonna finish uh, yeah i i mean i thought they were second best for most of this game actually mm. on sunday i thought newcastle were much the better team um yeah that's a remarkable start really one one defeat in their last 19 with two wins in the last six mm. i that is man united really at the moment isn't it they're sort yeah. of they're not one thing or the other i i think they'll finish top four and I guess that's that's the objective for them at the moment. So, um, yeah, yeah, like I say, I thought Newcastle were the better team, but um, they, I don't know, it's going to be an interesting one in the summer, really, because they're probably going to be one of the few clubs that can spend big. Um, and whether whether they get Sancho and and if that's uh, that's good for them or not, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be an interesting few months over the summer for United. Yeah, well, that was that was my next question actually. There was a report in the Athletic on Monday saying that United have called their interest in Sancho due to the emergence of Mason Greenwood. Matt, do you think that's a smart move or, or should they just go for Sancho and and get him and you know generational talent and all that? <laughs> yeah, I I think it really depends where they see Greenwood playing. But for me, Greenwood's a striker. Mm. Like definitely, he's he's the guy who's going to be able to play through the middle. And if they aren't as happy um, with uh, with Anthony Martial as as you would kind of see, and certainly his former season has been pretty poor, then yeah, I would definitely be more for switching Greenwood into the middle and going and getting Sancho. I'd, I'd hate to see someone with clearly so much talent as a striker be forced out wide just because there's other players, or just because he's you know a bit of a youngster and has kind of got to earn his stripes. Um, I don't really think that's going to be beneficial to his career long term. Like, yes, get some minutes on the pitch at right wing, but certainly if he's going to be a striker, like get him into that striking role sooner rather than later. Imagine a front three of Rashford, Greenwood, and Sancho. Yeah. Well, I, think, I think this game actually, what it, what really stood out to me was Martial and just how poor he is. Mm. Um, mm. He's their he's their fourth choice at the moment, and I th- and I think he's been given enough time now where. It, Man United probably just need to give up on him. Um, I I don't think they need to worry about paying that Ballon d'Or clause to uh, Monaco. <laughs> no. yeah. To be honest, so um, yeah, I think if he if they tried to get rid of him in the summer and brought in Sancho, obviously that'd be a massive upgrade for them. So um, yeah, yeah, that that was a big thing that stood out for me from this game. Really. Yeah, well, Martial scored just four Premier League goals this season. Mm. Would you uh, would you be looking at? I mean, it, this report in the Athletic did say that United are going to prioritise a striker and a centre back as their sort of summer business. So, do you reckon Erling Haaland is is who they should be uh, going for, Matt? Going all out for him? I mean, there isn't a team in the world that doesn't want Erling Haaland, or yeah. that Haaland doesn't make better. So, yeah, that's a bit of an easy one to put together. I don't think they'll be able to get him. Um, I'm not entirely sure. He really has his heart set on anywhere, maybe apart from Real Madrid. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't see why a striker would need to be necessary, like I said, if if they just move Greenwood in and bring in Sancho. But yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think Haaland may be a, a step too far um, for, for United. 
Mm. Well, in terms of the wide options, they've still got Dan James, of course. <laughs> he scored on yeah, his, yeah. His, uh, his first Premier League start since 26th of de- uh, December. Do, do you think he's good enough for them in the long run, Alex, even as a squad player, or, or do you reckon he'll, uh, he'll get moved on soon? Yeah, um, I thought I thought it was a strange move when that happens. When was that? The start of last season, mm. was it? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but I do, I'm not sure he's good enough for Manchester United, really. He, he's, he would be a brilliant player for Southampton or Aston Villa. Well, Le- Leeds wanted him yeah, at one point, and yeah, I think they, and they still kind of want him, apparently, yeah, don't they? He'd be, so. he'd be fantastic at Leeds, and I think mm. um, he just seems to have got lost at Man United, really, or maybe the weight of the club has been a bit too much for him. But seems again, seems like a lovely lad, but yeah, I'm not sure he's quite good enough for Man United. That's now 12 defeats now, last 16 matches for Newcastle, and they're, they're teetering dangerously above the relegation zone. If they do go down, Matt, do you think that would be one of the most stupid, most avoidable relegations we've ever seen? I just feel like the squad is is so much better than where it is, and you know the manager is clearly not good enough, and Mike Cashley doesn't seem prepared to do anything about it, and they're just kind of sleepwalking towards disaster. It just seems so stupid to me. It really does, and I feel like Ashley just doesn't really want to do anything until someone comes and buys it from him. Yeah, like I just can't really be hacked with any other paperwork. Bruce clearly doesn't really have. We talk about Mourinho being left behind, and I think Bruce as well just never really stepped forward, like yeah. at all, into any sort of modern coaching. Um, I really, at the end of last season when Villa were, were just survived relegation, I put those two on the same level. I thought Newcastle, Villa, some exciting players, um, you know, Grealish, and then you've got Almiron that looked like a good signing, and Joel Linton was a big move, and then Ross Barkley came in, and I put them on the same level, sort of, that the squad has potential. And now it's clear that, you know, Dean Smith and Villa kicked on, whereas I wouldn't even say they're standing still Newcastle. They're just not trying to slip further and further down. Mm. It's like being stuck in the mud, but just not really shouting for help. You're just sort of letting letting it happen. Yeah. It reminds me, you know, a football manager when you can go on holiday. Like, that's what Mike (laughs) Ashley's done. Yeah. He's just like, he's just giving up, hasn't he? Like, oh, whatever. Yeah. I'll I'll see if he's still there when I return. Exactly. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Uh, Leicester are just behind United in third place on goal difference after they won 2-1 away at Aston Villa on Sunday. Brendan Rodgers said afterwards that Leicester are playing with great calmness than they were when they collapsed in the second half of last season is that the vibe you're getting from them too Alex yeah I, I, I said previously that David Moyes might be manager this season it's got it might be Brendan Rodgers as well to be honest mm. they're they're just they're just a good team aren't they there's there's they're just a brilliant football team I, they never looked in doubt here Aston Villa is a difficult place to go especially this season I know they're a different team without Jack Grealish but um they just they scored those two early goals and they just never looked in doubt really. I, I love Harvey Barnes. I think he's a brilliant player. I think James Madison is really growing into one of the best in the Premier League. Um, and even without Jamie Vardy like properly firing, which you know in previous years would have meant them sliding down the table, they're just a brilliantly again well coached team who everyone knows their job. Um, from from Schmeichel all the way through to mid, midfield and attack, everyone just sort of is humming like like Liverpool were last season. Just know exactly what they're doing at all times, and um, yeah, I think they're just like like you said, they played with a greater calmness, and that's that's totally right. They um, yeah, they won this with relative ease in the end, which is which is really impressive. Yeah, the uh, the Brendan Rodgers fraudometer is firmly back in its box <laughs> at the moment. I don't think it'll ever see the light of day again. The way things are going. No. Uh, Alex mentioned James Madison and Harvey Barnes. They both scored in this game. Matt, if you're if you're Gareth Southgate, you can only take one of them to the Euros this summer. Who do you choose? 
Ooh, wow, what a question. Um, if you can only take one. I'd actually say Harvey Barnes, mm, yeah, even though I think Madison's the better player. I think Madison might just be a little bit better, have a little bit more experience. But if you're considering, um, you know, centrally fighting with Madison, you've got Mount, Grealish, Foden um, for that sort of creative number 10 role. I think on the left wing, Barnes is going to be, you know, behind Sterling. Um, and I'm trying to think who else. That's sort of it. So I think just in terms of of kind of a better variety in the squad, as good as I think Madison is, England are in such a good position with these attackers that he might not be as as much of a necessity as Harvey Barnes. I think Madison Madison is this generation's Letizia, really, without the uh, conspiracy. Theory, <laughs> but um, wow, he's just he's going to be one of those that just sort of he's just unlucky, really. There's you know there's enough players that are better than him in the mm. contention that he's probably only going to get about, you know, seven or eight caps. And that's, that would just be very, very unlucky. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'd go for Harvey Barnes as well. I think he's, um, he's grown into a really impressive player. Well, if Madison somehow does miss out on the squad, it, I, the TV company should be signing him up as an analyst straight away because he's great. He's, <laughs> he's great at that, isn't he? Some of his yeah, post-match no, interviews really yeah. been very interesting. Um, Alex, did this game uh, perhaps hammer home for you how important Jack Grealish is to Villa and could be a, a worrying sign of things to come for them if he if he leaves them in the summer as he's kind of expected? Yeah, they. I mean, it. Re- I mean, we thought it before, but everything really does revolve around him, and I think mm. this was this was an opportunity for Ross Barkley to. Maybe stamp his authority on them in the starting eleven, but that that didn't happen at all. They they did look totally lost without him. Um, and another interesting thing coming out of this game is Villa have now um, banned their players from fantasy football. Yeah, because a few a few of the Villa players took Jack Grealish out of their team on Friday night, which then got leaked to Leicester. Yeah, um, so that's they, right. Yeah. So they knew that Grealish wasn't starting before the game on Sunday. So um, yeah, that could be an interesting thing to uh, keep an eye on. Over yeah, weeks, but, there's, um, there's some software that can track like yeah, professional yeah. players' fantasy football teams and see what's what they've been doing to them. And, and apparently Apparently, like clubs are not all going to sort of ban the players from using it, but some they might ban them from picking their own teammates in their fantasy football team. Yeah, so I mean, it's, yeah, it's, wow. I'm sort of I'm surprised it's taken this long for something like that. That's yeah, happened, really. yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it looks like Grealish might be out for a month or five weeks, which would be um, wow. yeah, a huge blow for Villa because yeah, like I say, he really is um, the sort of glue that that sticks everything together in that side. Indeed. Uh, Fulham gave their survival hopes a huge shot in the arm when they beat fellow strugglers Sheffield United 1-0 on Saturday. Uh, the Cottagers have now lost just one of their last seven Premier League matches and they're just three points away from safety. Matt, on a scale of 1-10, to 10, how confident are you they're, they're going to stay up? Oh, four. <laughs> I still think they've got... They're in some good form at the moment, but they've still got some... Just some quality issues that I think eventually are going to kind of see them undone. But then again, this is the last two or three weeks I've been saying how bad Fulham are. <laughs> and they've been, they've been proving me wrong. So who knows? Um, they're definitely involved in it. And I just, I really wonder whether or not they're going to have enough in the end. Having said that, the signing of Madger and obviously Lookman as well who scored the winner. I mean, they're looking like the kind of guys who can turn a game on its head quite quickly. So you never really know, to be honest. But if anything, if recent form is to go by, yes. But I think as a season overall, I think they're just going to go down. 
I'm, I'm actually pretty confident they will stay up. You know, mm. I think the momentum's with them. Ariola's really grown into a proper Premier League mm. goalkeeper. I really like that midfield too of Anguissa and Harrison Reed. I think mm. that's they look the more the more games that come, the more impressive they get. Like you say, the, the signing of Madger has sort of given them a focal point up front, which is which is what they desperately needed. Um, and Lookman as well has been a bit of a revelation, really. So um, and then Scott Parker, who I think could be the next. I was about to say the next Frank Lampard, but better than that, I think he could be the next like big thing in in British management. If if I was Tottenham, I'd have Scott Parker over Jose Mourinho right now. Uh, <laughs> I think he's he's really impressive, and he, you know, in the press conferences after the game and his sort of tactical tweaks during games, I think he's a very good manager. And yeah, like I said, I think the momentum's with them totally. So. Um, yeah. I could, I could definitely see them staying up, for sure. Well, here's a start that blew my mind when I read it. Fulham took four points from their first nine games of the season, but since then they've only lost four times and only Man City have a better goals per game defence since that ninth game. Yeah. And that ninth wow. game, I think, coincided with the, tran- the transfer deadline when they brought in like loads of players and sorted it out, basically. So, you know, though, were it not for those early weeks of the season when they hadn't got the business done, they might have been pretty comfortable. I think that of those four defeats, they've only lost to, like, I think it's United, City, Chelsea and Leicester. Mm. So, you know, they're sort of teams that you would expect them to lose to. So, you know, they're beating or drawing the teams around them, which is really all you can ask for from a relegation Indeed. candidate. So, um, yeah, I'd be I'd be confident if I was a Fulham fan. Yeah. Quietly confident. <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say Sheffield United won't be staying up at this point. They've now lost <laughs> 20 of their 25 matches this season. They've scored just 15 goals. Uh, Alex, how much do you think injuries might have been a factor for them this season, though? We've not really talked about it, but they, they were already without John Egan. They've had Jack O'Connell out long term. Chris Basham had to go off in the Fulham game. That's sort of the core of their team, isn't it? Really? Uh, yeah, Jack O'Connell was a big one because he was he was that sort of overlapping centre back that that was so confusing to teams last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, six months with an ACL, and that that happened in sort of September last year. I think that was the big one. Um, yeah, like you say, Chris Bas- Chris Chris Basham is a, a big loss for them as well and um, I don't yeah they're, they're going down obviously they are but yeah, yeah I think injuries were a huge part of that and then just the, just being unlucky with this being the pandemic season which meant that you couldn't you can't look like look at Liverpool you can't really afford to have long term big players out injured because of the amount of games and, and everything so um, yeah it's unlucky for them but yeah injuries are a, were a huge factor in them yeah and, um, definitely. do you think they were lucky not to get a penalty in this game Matt for yeah. uh, Alphonse Areola's challenge on uh, on Jaden Bogle I think it was yeah yeah I think they're very unlucky from, from what I'm seeing right they, they they whoever made the decision are saying that his foot touches the ball but at the same time as the other foot slams into the guy's leg <laughs> yeah. so yeah I think you can't you can't really rule one piece of contact against the other I think they're very unfortunate not to get a penalty to be honest mm-hmm. if, if that happens outside the box you know it's a big collision and you, you foul you call a foul and you know they get a, they get a free kick for it I think it's really really harsh on them mm. Uh, well, Southampton ended a run of six straight defeats when they drew 1-1 with Chelsea in Saturday's early kickoff. Takumi Minamino scored the opening goal to give Saints a lead here. Um, do you think Liverpool were perhaps a bit foolish to send him out on loan, Matt, considering the, the backup options in that department are players like Origi and Shakiri, as we mentioned earlier? Um, not really, no, because I think he's had a year and he obviously hasn't pressed enough. There, there were some interesting comments from Hasenhutl sort of echoing what Klopp said about, I think, his work rate. Um, and how he, you know, on the ball he's great, but off the ball he's really got quite a lot to work on. Right. Um, so it's clear that there's something that Klopp has seen, you know what, this doesn't work for us because 
in a season where obviously injuries are at the forefront of everyone at Liverpool's mind, you really wouldn't risk sending someone out if you didn't feel like A, you weren't covered properly or B, you'd really be missing something by letting them go. Um, so no, I don't think they were so foolish. I just I just think he obviously wasn't really cutting the mustard for them. Yeah, fair enough. Bit of hindsight is a wonderful mm. thing, isn't it? Um, it was a very nice pass through from Nathan Redmond for Minamino's goal. But Alex, do you think Chelsea's defending there showed that Tuchel hasn't quite got them functioning as a as a unit he would like as he would like just yet? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's obviously always difficult to come into a team midway through the season, and I think. Uh, obviously, don't know the inside goings on at Chelsea, but I I get the impression that Tuchel's style of management is a lot different to Frank Lampard's. Mm. Um, so, and and again, the context of this season is everything really. That you know, having to play a game every three days is so difficult, and especially when you're a training ground manager like Tuchel is, it's it's always going to take a few more weeks. I think they they've actually been quite fortunate with the fixtures since he came in, and I, I guess. Chelsea looked at that and that's why they decided to sack Lampard yeah. when they did because they thought the fixture list was a bit easy uh, or easier to, to get a few wins under his belt. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, it was a good ball, but yeah, you're right. The defending doesn't look quite up to scratch at the moment and it's going to be really interesting to see how they cope against Atletico Madrid. Um, is that tonight or tomorrow? I can't remember. Tonight, but yeah, um, yeah that's, going to be, that's going to be fascinating actually. Really, really interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I must say that was the first goal scored by, uh, against Chelsea by an opposition player since Tuchel arrived because the Oh, okay. Other one they conceded was a uh, um, own goal from Rudiger, oh, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. They've, they've not been doing too badly. Let's yeah. just say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Callum Hudson Odoi came on for Tammy Abraham at half time of this game, and then 30 minutes later he was substituted. Uh, with Tuchel saying I was not happy with his attitude, energy, and counter pressing. Do you think that was fair, Matt? Um, I'm starting to question Tuchel here just a little bit because if he's come on at half time and then immediately not done what um, you know what's been told of him. Hudson Odoi doesn't really seem like the kind of guy who would just go out there and ignore instructions from his manager. So maybe, again, we don't know what was said, but maybe Tuchel failed to get the ideas across to him. Maybe they're a bit too confusing or something that Hudson Odoi needs time to adapt to, certainly with the counter pressing. As to the attitude and energy, I mean, it, it's a difficult one. I guess it's very. Um, it's very kind of objective as to you think what's going on. If, if a player is obviously not putting your instructions into into action on the pitch, then yeah, I guess it is kind of easy to say that I was not doing what I wanted. There's lazy and this, that, and the other. But but maybe there's you know I'm trying to defend Callum Hudson-Odoi a little bit here. <laughs> maybe it was you know something that he didn't understand, or as I said before, Tuchel really failed to get his idea across well. I actually yeah. think this is a huge positive rather than negative. I know people have been like sort of calling out Tuchel for this, but he's done this. Because he knows that Callum Hudson Doy is one of the best young players in the country, and I and I bet that Tuchel has said to Hudson Doy privately, "I've said this because I know that you're mentally resilient and you can take it." And that has now sent a message to the rest of the squad. I think sometimes we've got to remember that managers do talk to players on the training ground yeah. and in their yeah. offices in the week, and what we hear in press conferences is sometimes not what they actually mean and mm. they they can tell players I'm going to tell the press this and I will mean this and I will say this to you privately instead and I actually think that this he's using Callum hudson Doy just as a way of telling the rest of his squad I wasn't happy with your effort but I know you as as a young player and as a really good player can as have the mental capacity to be able to deal with this and understand mm-hmm. the instructions so I actually think because 
people were saying this is kind of similar to what Lampard was doing. That's why he got yeah. sacked. But actually, it's the total opposite. <laughs> Lampard was just saying uh, the, the players weren't trying. The players as a group, we weren't trying hard enough. They didn't follow my instructions. Whereas this was uber specific. And I think the players will take much more notice of that than what than what um, Lampard was saying earlier on in the season. So, mm. yeah, I actually think this could be a, a pos- massive positive for Chelsea and a huge springboard for going forward to be honest yeah very good point very good point uh, well Ralph Hasenhutl was saying afterwards that he hopes uh, Southampton can find some form again after this result do you expect that from them now Alex yeah I, t- I mean it, they've they've been in some dreadful form haven't they before that was it six well, they certainly hadn't won in six before, before this and I know this wasn't a win but Chelsea are, are a good side and yeah they sort of they seem to be struggling a little bit but um, I like Southampton I think they're a really good team and they, they've just they've got a lot of good players and I like the manager so yeah I, I can't say obviously I don't think they're going to get Europe or anything like that but um, yeah this this could hopefully be a spring ball for them I'm just uh, looking to see who they've got next um, they have Leeds um, Leeds which should be an interesting should game be, yeah, yeah. Everton and then Sheffield United so mm. yeah potentially could get a, could get a few wins in that um, so yeah hopefully this yeah this might be a spring ball for them yeah well Matt and I were both saying on last week's podcast that we expect Chelsea to sneak into the top four come the end of the season do you still fancy them to do it Matt? Uh, yeah I think so I think I think they'll, they'll get in there I'm not sure again been proven wrong plenty of times this season. I'm not sure West Ham, as as the kind of obvious target at the moment, really could keep this up more than Chelsea could. So yeah, I think Chelsea will sneak in. Yeah, go on, Alex. We did this last week. What's your top four in order? In order, yeah. Man City, Leicester, uh-huh. uh, Man United, Chelsea. Yeah. I'm starting to think it's going to be that as well, actually. I can't remember what I said. Like, I think I said Liverpool <laughs> might get in it last weekend, but I've changed my mind about that. No, we yeah. didn't. I don't think we put Liverpool in there. Yeah. Well, it changes every week at the moment anyway, doesn't it? <laughs> You're on a fraud watch, Dan. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, on Monday night, we saw possibly the biggest smash and grab of the season so far when Crystal Palace won 2-1 away at Rivals Brighton, courtesy of a 95th minute Crystal Palace winner uh, from Christian Benteke. Uh, earlier in the game, Jean-Philippe Mateta opened the scoring for Palace with a brilliant pirouette finish through the goalkeeper's legs. Not a bad way to announce yourself to the Premier League, that was it, Matt? Not at all. What a great finish. <laughs> I seem to be always mentioning that Palace are lacking a goal scorer. And I think even Benteke alluded to it afterwards. Yeah. Um, he had a quote saying, yeah, I don't even score that many anyway. Um, <laughs> so he's obviously, he's very well aware that his goal record's poor. And I think Palace have been dying for a striker to, to kind of finish their moves off and take some of the pressure off Zahar. And if he's putting out finishes like that... yeah. For his first Premier League goal, then you've got to be excited at things to come, surely, as a Palace yeah. fan. I thought it was a really nice goal from Benteke as well, under the circumstances. Oh, yeah, true. I, I saw a few people, uh, Alex, saying the goalkeeper could have done a bit better. Do you think that was, what, that was right? Yeah. Because nah. he just kind of like didn't really even stick out a hand, but I just think nah. it was such a great snapshot, wasn't nah, it? It wasn't what finish. you could do. It yeah. Coming over the defender's head as well. Nah. Exactly. So, yeah. That's a lovely goal. Yeah. Van Basten esque. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, yeah. <laughs> uh, Brighton had 25 shots in this game and 75% possession still lost. Um, you know, we've said all season, Matt, that, that if they had someone who could finish their chances, they'd be dangerous. But do you, do you think relegations are genuine danger for them now? But they're only four points out of Fulham. Yeah, exactly. And they're the ones who are on the up and Brighton not so much. And I think. That has been the tale one too many times of, you know, teams that try and play it nicely and try and sort of adapt to the Premier League. But at the end of the day, you kind of got to put the points on the board. And I think Hodgson said after the game, you know, oh, stats this and passing that. 
the only the only stats that matter are the goals. <laughs> that's that's what Hodgson said. And, yeah. and to yeah. be fair, he's got a bit of a point to be <laughs> honest because they got three points and Grand Potter for all the possession and this that and the other uh, have have got nothing. Yeah. I like I like Brighton and I've been I'm on record as saying that I think Graham Potter should be the next England manager. But I I do I do worry for them a little bit. They do they just haven't got a goal scorer, have they? I mean, mm. you just read out the stats there, Dan, and mm. um, it's not looking good. I guess they hoped that Danny Welbeck might be that person, but um, that was yeah, foolish. That hasn't, that hasn't quite worked <laughs> out as planned. But yeah, I think. I think they, I think they might have enough just to stay up, and I think Newcastle might go down. But um, yeah, it's not, it's not looking quite as good as it was a few weeks ago when they were beating Liverpool at Anfield. That's no, true. it's it's tricky to buy a goal scorer when you're a club mm. of that level as well, yeah. isn't it? Without spending big money, and mm. um, it'd be interesting to see who they who they do go for if they stay up. Uh, the weekend kicked off with Wolves extending their unbeaten run to four matches with a one 0 win over Leeds on Friday night. Uh, I think Leeds can probably consider themselves a bit unlucky here. The goal went in off off Meslier off the bar, and then mm. um, Bamford had an equaliser ruled out for offside. Um, do you think they deserved a point here, Alex? Yeah, I thought Leeds looked much the better team. Like, Wolves are just so boring at the moment, aren't they? It must be one of the worst. They probably are the worst side to watch in the league at the moment, which, you know, last season they were arguably one of the most exciting. And mm. yeah, every game, Wolves game I watch now is just, yeah, snooze fest, really. Yeah. But, um, I mean, to make Leeds look boring, that's how, uh, that's how boring Wolves are. So, <laughs> yeah, I thought Leeds did deserve a point, to be honest. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was a good finish by Bamford, wasn't it? But I'm ruled offside. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I thought they were unlucky not to not to get a draw. Yeah, I mean, Wolves have turned things around results-wise in recent weeks after a rotten run. Uh, Matt, do you think they might have actually, uh, it might have been a good thing that they've kind of been forced how to learn to play without Raul Jimenez and, and perhaps won't be so reliant on him in future? Yeah, absolutely. Because those those few months after he was injured, just they just looked like they fell to pieces. They just really struggled with the focal point in their team. And uh, Connor Cody was saying recently as well how much he really uh, has loved William Jose's impact in the squad. And I think just having a bit of a bit of a not a second plan because I don't think it changed their style too much, but just having someone else in there and being able to feel like themselves again is absolutely massive. And just sort of sitting around twiddling your thumbs waiting for him and as to come back is going to do them or their players no favours. Well, the big thing they did, at, well, they certainly did it the weekend and they did it the week before, is they've moved Traore and Neto. They've moved their wings. So Traore's on the left-hand side now rather than mm. the right. And that's where that goal came from, you know, him cutting inside and just hitting a howitzer off the bar. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that um, that seems to have worked. And those little and, and it means that they can sort of, with William or Jose, he's quite immobile as a central striker, but it means they, the wide forwards can get in closer to him and so they can play one-twos off him and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, that seems, to have, that seems to have worked a little bit over the past few weeks. I'm glad they figured something out. <laughs> they were just looking so stale without him. Yeah, yeah. Where do you stand on Adam Atroy at this point, Matt? I mean, is is he a potentially amazing player who just needs a bit of coaching or a beefcake who would be nothing without his physicality? I mean, he's got no goals and one assist in 24 Premier League appearances this season, which isn't great, is it? Let's be honest. Yeah, that's not fantastic. I really, I feel like I fall into the same trap as probably a lot of managers and coaches would, is that every time you see those stats and, you know, you see him on the pitch and he's playing poorly, you think, ah, oh, God, he's rubbish. We shouldn't sign him. But then you just think, oh, but what if? It's always that what if. It's always that what if we can just coach him a little bit. If we can just improve that final ball. If we can just get him to score and assist a few more. You've kind of, he's laid the foundation for every coach to think that they might just be the ones to get something out of him. Um, 
and yeah, you can't. It's so hard to ignore. If you if you were to take him on a trial, and you were to see him breeze past players in training, and that and that pace and power, you'd you'd be so tempted. It, yeah. it, I can I can see why he'd still probably go for quite a big money move um, this summer, despite the fact he's had a poor season. Mm. There was some talk of like Man City, Man United being in him from a couple of years ago. I don't I don't know if that's uh, nah. going to come to fruition anymore. Nah. I would <laughs> love to see Guardiola coach him. <laughs> yeah. Imagine? Imagine <laughs> if he turned him into a monster. He'd play him in goal or something, wouldn't he? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, West Brom did their survival chances. No real favours when they only managed a nil-nil draw at Burnley on Saturday. But Sam Allardyce was pleased this side managed to take a point despite having Semi Ajayi sent off after 30 minutes. Uh, afterwards, Allardyce said that was one of the best 10-man performances I've ever seen in my time. Do you agree with him there, Alex? Uh, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Burn- Burnley were particularly bad, I must yeah, say. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't... Uh, I was covering this game and it was... Uh, yeah, it wasn't the best. Um, but uh, they they were much the better team actually. West Brom. They um, yeah, they they really they I can't remember who it was Mister Mister Chance got cleared off the line right at the end. Um, but yeah, they were they were much. Maitland Niles, I think. Yes, it was. That's it. Was, it. Yeah, yeah, Maitland Niles. Yeah. Um, he had one cleared off the line. So um, yeah, they were much the better side of ten men. But yeah, it's always. Um, yeah, going to Turf Moor and getting a point is always a positive result. Uh, Mike Dean was the referee here. That was his 100th and 11th Premier League red card, which is 44 more than any other referee oh in the history of the competition. <laughs> Did you have any compl- complaints about this one, Matt? I mean, it seems a bit harsh that someone would get a straight red card for a handball in that area of the pitch, but then it is denying a clear, score, uh, clear goal-scoring opportunity, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, I think there'd be more questions if he didn't, the more questions than he did. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, for me... Yeah, it's 99% of the time, you know, you can't just sort of stick your hand out when even as far out as you are when someone's going to be through. So, yeah, it's, it's a record. Yeah. I, know, I know it's not particularly fashionable, but I think fair play to, to Mike Dean here because he he got he asked to be taken out of the roster mm. the week before because he'd had death threats, mm. which is just absolutely scandalous. Um, so to it's a, it was a big decision, you know. It was it was the decision of a brave referee, and you mm. can't can't accuse him of shirking his responsibility. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. no, fair play to him. Though, so. As I've said many times, I will not have a bad word said about Mike Dean on this no. podcast. I think, he's, <laughs> I think he's amazing. Uh, I mean, what I found more baffling was why Burnley didn't get a penalty for the um, the blatant handball by Kyle Bartley in the box on this one. That was a nailed on penalty for me. Uh, um, penalty. I don't know. I, I, Dean wasn't even asked to look at that one. I don't think. Which no, I found really yeah, strange. Yeah, I think yeah. he got let down by Stocky part there, didn't he? That I think that was part. Well, maybe the Fulham one, but that was the, the most baffling decision of the weekend. I thought mm. that that handball, but. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned it, Alex. Burnley were really poor here. They have just one shot on target despite playing against 10 men for an hour. Do you think it's these sort of games that might put other clubs off the idea of hiring Sean Dyche as their manager? I, people always, like, people like Harry Redknapp or, you know, or whoever, to pick a name out of a hat, will always say Sean Dyche is an example of why big clubs, you know, they're sort of biased against English managers or whatever. Yeah. But I just... Yeah, this is you're exactly right. This this was sort of classic dice, really. They they didn't go for the game. They played playing against ten men at home. Um, yeah, it's just it was so sort of one note, and yeah, it wasn't it wasn't good. Like I say, I was covering this game, and it was absolutely dire. So. I'd, I'd be prefer if we moved on. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, we're going to finish now. But just, <laughs> ju- just finish on this note: the, the bottom six teams in the Premier League are all managed by English managers. So doesn't that just say everything? Wow. Oh, doesn't wow. that say everything? England, there you go. English. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, well, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of the Premier League Weekend Review podcast. I've been Dan Burke. Thanks to Matt Froelich and Alex Mott for joining me, and thank you to everyone for listening. That's uh, There's plenty more One Football podcast action coming your way later in the week when Angelina Kelly returns with the Women's Football Show, and I will be joining Ian McCourt to talk about the Champions League on Thursday as well. If you would like to get in touch with any of our shows, the email address is podcast at onefootball.com, or you can tweet us at onefootball. Thanks again, and bye for now.